BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill talk about when people want to quote-unquote come off of their medications they say I want to stop taking all my medicines I don't want to be on these pills Uh, so what are the things you look at obviously we gather a full list of medications and supplements and then what sort of process do you look at when you're going through and talking about what things we can discontinue what things we could simplify what things we can eliminate we talk about this quite often so when you're thinking about taking away supplements or medications or whatever else, you never want to be the bad guy. And unfortunately, there's not many healthcare professionals, whether they're dietitians or doctors or naturopathic doctors or whatever the case may be, that are able to balance the risks and benefits of any medication or supplement. Because as we say often, the difference between a medication and a supplement is one's prescribed and one's not. And nobody is going to recommend a supplement or medication for you to start that if they don't think it's gonna help. So then if you're taking things away, especially if you're a member of an interdisciplinary team, they can almost kind of see that as, well, they chose my medication or supplement as the least helpful medication or supplement. So that's a, a difficult, way to look at it's almost kind of like being the mediator between the members of the healthcare team and the patient but as their uh, you know healthcare provider somebody has got to do that and often it ends up being us yeah i mean when you have someone that comes and they have a list of medications and that specific agenda you know we have to meet them halfway so we can't just immediately strip away every medication or supplement that somebody's taking if they've worked with a, a dietitian, for example, there's a specific reason that people are taking that. If they're going to a, a gastroenterologist and they've been put on some sort of you know, medication for their stomach, usually to treat you know, a symptom or um, a disorder of some kind, gastric motility, uh, you have to look and see, okay, what was this actually prescribed for? And uh, unfortunately, we have to play detective sometimes with the patients. A lot of times, if the list grows too long, they're not sure you know, why they're taking what medications. And it, yeah. it can be useful to comb through some of those specialist notes and see 
you know, what was this person thinking whenever they, you know, started this medication? Because, like you mentioned, everyone has the goal of helping a patient when they start them on something. We're not just trying to prescribe drugs because, uh, you know, big pharma gives us kickbacks. And we actually try to prescribe the more cost-effective medications. A lot of good ones have become generic and are on, you know, for example, the Walmart $4 list or Mark Cuban's online pharmacy. You know, yeah. There's a lot of affordable medications that are doing people a lot of good. That's very true. And you should have a healthcare provider or a health coach or any member of your interdisciplinary team that is looking for not only the right medication or supplement, but the best value or the best deal on whatever medication or supplement that there is. There's obviously some limitations to that as you know, different pharmacies or especially different supplement companies can have uh, variation in the quality of the active ingredient and the inert ingredient as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're looking at uh, generics versus you know brand name, they do have to go through some pretty rigorous trials and be approved. But I think you and I have both seen some patients who, you know, they have to stick to you know a specific manufacturer for like their thyroid replacement or you know, even if the numbers are not changing a whole lot in the blood work, you know, that patient can you know, detect a difference or they attribute that difference to the change in medication. So keeping things consistent in that department is really beneficial just for the continuity of care and not chasing lab values around and not you know, telling the patient that there's nothing wrong, it's the same medication. Because we don't want to ever you know, deny that the symptoms that somebody's experiencing because you know, those things do happen. Absolutely. Speaking of consistency, when you're thinking about taking medications away, it's the same decision-making process as when you're starting medications. So you're thinking about subjective data and objective data that it's helping the patient. So their biofeedback, how they're feeling, how their labs look, how their diagnostics look. And then you're looking at those same things for how they might be detrimental to the patient. And you're looking at it for the intended purpose of the medication. And you're also looking at it at other secondary unintended purposes that might be having kind of a beneficial side effect or having a, a two birds with one stone effect. Yeah, and another way to simplify things, uh, as you alluded to, is you know if you have one medication that's multi-purposed or if you have two medications combined in a sort of a polypill. So thinking of people that have resistant hypertension, there's a lot of good polypill combinations out there now. Mm -hmm. So the patient says, well, I just want to take less pills. Well, that can be a, a fairly easy thing to do if you're just combining multiple medications into the same pill. Because pill burden is a real deterrent to long-term consistency. It is. There's been lots of excellent studies that look at adherence, which some people call compliance. But adherence is basically, if you're prescribed this regimen, how likely you are to be able to reasonably take it. So if you look at blood pressure medications, there's been studies that show, you know, three different pills taken separate versus one pill, there's obviously going to be better adherence with one pill. Yeah, it just simplifies things. And to go back to the list and some of the things that we look at uh, potentially discontinuing in patients, uh, I guess some common ones I would start with would be like a, a proton pump inhibitor or a NSAID, anti-inflammatory medication, because we know both of those are linked to some less than desirable long-term outcomes. And mm -hmm. the data can be a bit messy because, you know, sicker people are more likely to take more medications, but there's a very clear link between NSAID use, uh, specifically chronic NSAID use yep. and kidney dysfunction, uh, chronic kidney disease, 
um, increased risk of vascular events. And even if you're using a more selective, like a COX-2 inhibitor, as opposed to just slamming ibuprofen, you're going to still have that risk of uh, long-term kidney disease. Uh, the proton pump inhibitors are a little bit more nuanced because some people are on those for very specific reasons. Uh, Barrett's esophagus, they've had some of those changes, so you're looking at, well, it's probably the lesser of two evils to continue on the PPI and reduce your risk for esophageal cancer, um, and then screen for those mineral deficiencies that we can see. So what are some of the common things you're screening for when you have someone on long-term proton pump inhibitor therapy? You're screening for gut microbiome uh, pathology. You're screening for osteoporosis, which is slightly more likely. You're screening for chronic infections. If they have inflammatory bowel disease, it appears a correlation, but not necessarily causation. Theoretically, it does. But it's, not, it's, it's a kind of a weak link between worse outcomes and inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Those are just a few of the things that you look for with chronic PPI use. Um, if you're thinking about someone who's been on a PPI for a long period of time, often it's stomach irritation or heartburn or even silent reflux. And those are great cases to manage, often with a gastroenterologist, and also cases to consider testing for a bacteria known as H. pylori, which uh, there's kind of a debate on whether or not it's a normal upper gut microbiota in extremely small levels. But if it gets severe, then it can even cause cancer. Yeah, the H. pylori is certainly associated with the incidence of ulcers and also mm -hmm. long-term gastric cancers. Yeah. But you were telling me about a paper that showed that a low titer or having some H. pylori actually may have some immunomodulatory properties and mm -hmm. we shouldn't just wipe out a bug because it's there in small quantities. Yeah. Upper gut and lower gut crosstalk. So your upper gut, I believe the upper gut in general ends at the ligament of treats, which doesn't necessarily matter. It's just a tiny bit of the small intestine and then the stomach. Normally the stomach, at least classically, it was thought that the stomach does not have any normal bacteria. It's very acidic, or at least it's usually very acidic. And uh, it, that's one of its, you know, that's the, the body's defense mechanism. So when you lose that acidity in the stomach, you lose not only a lot of the body's natural defense mechanisms against things like fungi or bacteria, you also lose some of that kind of the top part of the enzyme cascade where you're activating pepsin and a pepsinogen and basically just starting up all these different enzymes to help break down proteins and other uh, molecules. In addition to that, if you look at the incidence of atopy, which is asthma, allergies, and eczema, a triad, um, you have a lower incidence if you have a higher titer of H. pylori, which is uh, a benefit. And then you also have a lower incidence of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's as well. Yeah, it's another great example of not wanting to be on one extreme or the other. You don't want to have a empty gut microbiome with no bacteria there. Mm -hmm. We know that causes problems. And at the same time, you don't want to have overgrowth of other bacteria like the H. pylori or bacteria that are going to produce lots and lots of TMAO when you mm -hmm. take in things like carnitine and choline. 
Um, so really what I see is uh, improvement in gut alpha diversity, which is yeah. the standard metric that they're using in these studies, seems to be correlated with positive outcomes. And there's a couple of behaviors we know that lead to this. Uh, exercise is going to do it. You don't even have to take a probiotic to improve your alpha diversity. Um, eating fiber, you know, which most people do not get enough of. Most people are, I think, about 10 or 15 grams per day, and they should really be closer to 30 or 40 grams per day. Mm -hmm. Slowly, of course, we don't want to yeah. give anybody abdominal discomfort. And then one that's come under the light recently is fermented foods. Mm -hmm. So things like ginger and sauerkraut and kombucha, uh, lots of those fermented foods can improve the gut alpha diversity quite quickly. Those are wonderful ways to help with your gut health. Um, you know, you see a lot of people start medications like a fluoroquinolone, like Cipro, even for traveler's diarrhea. And those are the ones that are not only associated with tendinopathies, they're also associated with the highest incidence of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and um, the worst outcomes when it comes to your gut microbiota. But that being said, there's a risk and benefit to everything and sometimes you need it for a different reason. So it just goes to show that you need an individualized regimen when it comes to your medications and supplements and also when it comes to your gut as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. You take antibiotics and you know you are going to thin your herd quite significantly. Mm -hmm. And I think in the setting of antibiotics and the period thereafter, there can be some benefit for using probiotics or beneficial yeast like the Saccharomyces, Definitely. particularly if somebody is prone to something like C. diff, which yep. can be a, can be a life-threatening uh, diarrhea depending on how frail a person is at baseline. Uh, but as far as somebody taking a probiotic every day, that, it's certainly not something I'm recommending for each and every one of my patients. Like, you have to take a probiotic. Yep. It's a really a lot more about the lifestyle changes because you see the benefits of probiotic therapy in a couple small studies here and there, mm -hmm. but they do disappear fairly quickly after stopping that probiotic. Yeah. Um, probiotics is an extremely interesting topic because, uh, as we've chatted about before, there's a lot of over-the-counter, and now it looks like there's going to be prescription probiotics as time goes on as well. So how you patent a probiotic, not exactly sure how that uh, goes on. Maybe you patent the delivery mechanism but there's certainly a lot of companies trying to do so. And I have seen recent studies come out about certain probiotics and prevention of C. diff reoccurrence. They call it a, a full spectrum um, medication or a full spectrum probiotic, but full spectrum is different in each person. So I'm pretty skeptical of um, whether or not they, like if that's truly a, like a, a perfect medication to give everyone. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't uh, prescribe it blindly for each and every person, uh, but the trials I think I would like to see done there would be in these uh, hospitalized patients who have either had C. diff in the past or who are you know, in the ICU on lots of different antibiotics to get the appropriate coverage yeah. and seeing what is the actual outcome here because a probiotic should not really be that expensive to produce and you, they're probably going to save money from preventing the complications of getting a recurrence of C. diff yeah. by putting people on this and putting the right patients on it. So not every single patient that goes into the hospital, but those that are screened and found to be at particularly high risk. Yeah, I'd like it compared to other things like S. Bilardi is another interesting probiotic that's used often in gut pathology. So there's, there's all these different ones and you're tracking trends over time as well. One analogy that I like to use, no analogy is perfect, that's why they're called analogies, but you think of your gut, including your 
gut microbiome as a very complicated ter combined terrarium and aquarium. Part terrarium, part aquarium, things kind of live in the, the mix of both. And you can put in new species of fish or amphibians, but if you don't start feeding those fish and amphibians their preferred diet, they will just die out and, and die. So when you have bowel movements, let's say you have chronic constipation, imagine not draining the bottom of your fish tank. All that silt built up over time. That could be kind of like bacterial overgrowth. Let's say you have chronic diarrhea and, stool, and just frequent stools. You're draining it all the time, and the good bacteria never has the chance to build up. And then you have other things like you mentioned, exercise, all the other factors that are related, even hormonal factors, that's like um, changing the temperature, changing the environment of your terrarium aquarium. So you have to change all, like in order to help a probiotic work or in order to keep those fish or amphibians alive that you want, then you have to change that ecological niche. Yeah, it's a lot like nourishing a, a garden or taking care of an aquarium. You can't just throw the seeds or throw the fish in and expect everything else to work out. Um, but you know, talking about draining the system, I think that is a really good analogy for how some people are predisposed to SIBO. If you have a slower gastric motility, which happens with certain medications, happens as people increase in age, happens mm -hmm. in things like hypothyroidism, you are more likely to see that bacteria from the large intestine back up into the small intestine mm -hmm. uh, because that's what bacteria does to survive is just proliferate and take the path of least resistance. Yep. And then those people, you know, they can have this uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth which is correlated with a number of things, uh, like restless leg syndromes, which then could be treated with you know, dopamine agonists as opposed to treating the SIBO that's causing the underlying issue. So that would be an example of somebody who has a medication with an interesting risk profile in the long term, but if we could treat the SIBO and then take them off of dopamine agonist yeah. over time, uh, that would be another example of something I would look at as an unnecessary medication. Absolutely. Um, I had a commenter on one of my last posts, and he was uh, saying these uh, great insight about prebiotics and different foods to help your gut microbiome and probiotics. And I read his name, and it was Steve Lorius, and I was like, that is a, that's a famous aesthetic bodybuilder. I thought to myself, it's no coincidence that um, a bodybuilder who is most known for no gut bloating and being extremely aesthetic no bodybuilder gut um, and just like a great midsection is caring about these things so um, it, it matters for aesthetics as well yeah it's more than just people who want to be you know health nuts if you were in the summer and you just want to be less bloated there's a, a million hacks out there that you know will claim to de-bloat you but it, it's really about building a healthy you know gut foundation from the ground up because mm -hmm. you can be very lean but if you've got you know a bunch of gas expansion going on in your yeah. intestines, you're going to look bloated and you're not going to see the results of your hard work for summer. So there's more to it than just pineapple, apple cider vinegar, and low FODMAP. And detox teas. <laughs> and detox teas That's too. That's right. No. So I guess a couple of other medications we could talk about that would be, you know, carefully considered and discussed with patients coming off would be um, SSRIs, antidepressants in general. Uh, they're very effective medications for getting, uh, getting depression into remission. Um, 
I think the studies are a little bit confounded because there is a high placebo response rate in antidepressant studies in general. Sometimes you can see upwards of 50% of people given a placebo treatment also have a resolution of depression because in general I think people are resilient so they tend to get back to a, a better baseline mentally, particularly when they have something that inspires hope, yeah. uh, like an antidepressant. You know, take mm -hmm. this pill, about two, four weeks you're going to start having improvements in your symptoms. So they are good medications. I'm sure they've switched. They've, uh, they've saved countless lives at this point. Um, but people do have side effects with these things that can be related to you know, nausea, uh, digestion, things in the gut, because that's where a lot of your serotonin is synthesized. Uh, not that that serotonin actually crosses the blood-brain barrier, but there's some crosstalk there potentially mediated by the vagus nerve. It's yeah. not totally understood yet. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why some people do have these GI effects, um, specifically the serotonergic antidepressants can cause mm -hmm. sexual dysfunction with a person, you know, they may not be depressed anymore, uh, but their you know, sexual health is lacking. So mm -hmm. they say, well, you know, I, I feel great now, I'm in a good place mentally, can I stop this medication? Yeah, so there, there's something called SSRI withdrawal syndrome, and it happens with any SSRI or SNRI, but it's it's more or less severe depending on the medication. For example, Effexor or Venlafaxine is pretty fast acting. It's relatively mild, or sorry, it's relatively severe and it happens very quickly. So you'll notice it within, uh, you know, even a day or two and often it'll last a couple weeks. With some, for example, paroxetine, it's relatively weak. There's active metabolites, so that there's kind of a little bit around, it's kind of like weaning off when you're on a prednisone taper to where it's not as severe, but pretty much all of them have it, and there's lots of different strategies to mediate through this. When you're thinking about SSRIs, it's like any other medication as well. When you have a pathology, even if it's, you know, mental health ones included, depression, anxiety, you think about what was the cause of that? Is there anything else that we need to rectify? Because if you don't, uh, you know, fix the problem holistically when you're thinking about your pillars of lifestyle health and such, then after you go off the SSRI, you're much more likely to go back if you haven't fixed what caused it in the first place. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I think a lot of clinicians will put SSRIs on a problem and the problem will get better because your brain sort of goes back into autopilot of not having those you know, intrusive thoughts or anxious type symptoms. It's kind of like the guardrails keeps your brain from wandering into those uncomfortable places. Yeah. But if you're not doing, if you're not looking at the potential underlying causes like uh, hypothyroidism is a common cause of mm -hmm. depression. Um, women who experience depression during and around menopause, a lot mm -hmm. of times it's hormonal as opposed to uh, you know, serotonin deficiency. Yeah. That's not to say that people are doing the wrong thing by offering people access to these medications because they can be very effective. They can help people to you know, get out of this hole that they're dug into and get to a better place so that they can work on some of those pillars. If you're depressed, a lot of times you may not feel like doing the right things, doing the things you know are going to help you, and you're viewing the world through a little bit of a distorted lens. Say you're using an SSRI and you have an improvement in a few weeks, it can be a positive catalyst for making some of those changes we talked about. Yeah, uh, some individuals just want to feel comfortably numb, like Pink Floyd said. But SSRIs and SNRIs, um, in general, 
the antidepressant medication class, which is obviously not really a class. For example, um, the computer will pop up and say, well, butrin is in the same class as escitalopram. And really, it's not. So, but anyway, they're really just tools to help achieve something. So, it, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a solution in and of itself, but as long as the patient is aware of that and does shared decision making with their provider. Some people just don't, they want to feel better before they fix it and then they fix it. And that's okay, that's just up to the individual. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there, you know, bupropion and escitalopram as two examples. And you may have somebody come in with sexual dysfunction from an SSRI. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, well, how is your depression right now? Yeah. And talking about tapering off the medication slowly, they say, well, we'll add bupropion to that because your libido's down, and then maybe the guy also has some ED. So, okay, we'll also add Tadalafil to that. So then you've got somebody who could have came off of their one medication they mm -hmm. were on, potentially now on three medications. And I think that's a, a kind of a path that some people get started on, mm -hmm. and then they're like, well, I just, you know, I'm taking these pills now, I must be really sick. Yeah, maybe add TRT as well for that ED. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's it's a conversation that happens often. I call it a pharmaceutical cascade, where you're just prescribing um, kind of um, just side effect prescribing, really. Yeah, and, and it's unfortunate, but I think it, everything is well-intentioned. You know, people are saying, well, if they're having this problem, so I'm going to fix it with this. You know, there's a, a school of thought out there that people are over-prescribing because we want people to be sick and we want to harm people when um, a lot of times the opposite is the same. I'll have you know, some patients who are coming in and they're taking a, a boatload of supplements and, you know, I was like, do you feel like these are helping you? So, like, what benefit specifically can you attribute to when you started taking this or, you know, started taking, you know, this medication? Uh, a lot of times they will say that, you know, there's not a, I, I can't tell a difference. So then, unless there's a, a long-term thing, something like you know hypertension being the silent killer, I would put something like dyslipidemia in the same yeah. category, insulin resistance. Unless you're treating something that you have you know, objective data on, then it could be in that category of a, an unnecessary prescription. Yeah, that's definitely true. Antibiotics are a great example of that too, because often by the time you're taking an antibiotic, you need it. But just using your example of the average American eating way too low of healthy types of fiber like soluble fiber and prebiotic fiber. The average person eats not near enough fiber and then that leads to the very high incidence of diverticulitis or inflammation of the little diverticuli in the colon and then that leads to antibiotic prescriptions, often fluoroquinolones. And those same antibiotic prescriptions are leading to a very high incidence. It appears that antibiotics in ages over about 60 or so, that's what skyrocketed the incidence of even inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or UC over the age of 60, which in general you think it happens at a much earlier age. But those things are all correlated and you can kind of see the, the, the lifestyle intervention which should have happened much earlier and then it just progresses all the way and soon you have inflammatory bowel diseases and an ostomy bag. Yeah, and the, the diverticulitis is something that's going to happen over a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. If you miss your fiber intake for a week or even a couple of years, yeah. you're going to essentially 
not suffer negative consequences of that more than likely. But 20 or 30 years down the road, you're going to have a colonoscopy and they're going to say, hey, you have uh, diverticulosis and you are at risk for diverticulitis now. So it's something that you know, is a, a long-term consequence of some of the groundwork that should be d being done earlier on. Yeah. Often, um, individuals just reach a point where they're on biologics for their inflammatory bowel disease and they don't like being on the synthetic biologics and they're often on antibiotics and they're always getting surgeries and colonoscopies. And those cases, you know, there's obviously hope for all cases and dietary intervention still helps and the right types of fiber still helps and co-managing with a gastroenterologist helps as well. But um, I'm glad that the, the shift towards like lifestyle interventions is hopefully preventing those cases. That's what I call true preventative medicine. Yeah, I, I really like the, what you called earlier, the pharmaceutical cascade, and you can kind of have the health cascade in the same way, either in a positive or a negative sense. Um, I guess a final medication we could talk a bit about for potentially discontinuing is uh, people who go on a, uh, women who go on an oral contraceptive. Uh, so they start this, you know, maybe they have uh, painful cramps and they, they don't want it to be as painful or they have you know, some mood irregularities that appear to be cyclical in nature so they get put on an oral contraceptive and those can certainly have some you know, side effects and consequences. Uh, it's, it's quite well known that they do increase the risk of blood clots which is why if somebody is a, a smoker or has other risk factors for a DVT or pulmonary embolism yes. you would um, be very hesitant to prescribe those things to those patients. Yes, um, a, a good analogy is oral contraceptives are essentially just synthetic HRT. So you're thinking about the effect in all systems of the body. You're thinking about hepatic effects since they're oral. You know, the, the first pass effect, they have very strong uh, activation or agonism of estrogen receptor specifically in the liver which increases SHBG, which can decrease free testosterone. It increases your growth hormone binding peptides. It changes every, a lot of different proteins that are made in the liver or binding globulins, SHBG being the most well-known, are affected by the action of estrogen in the liver. And then it affects your platelets as well. There has been some studies that have uh, looked at the incidence of VTE or venous thromboembolism blood clots and there is slight differences depending on which, depending on one, the dose of the estrogen. And now we have more estrogens than just ethanol estradiol. And um, also the type of synthetic progestin that's used. Yeah, so there's still smart prescribing decisions that can be made there mm -hmm. uh, for those cases where it is indicated or it does fit with the patient's lifestyle and there's a lot of power in being able to control when you do or when you do not get pregnant. Um, you talked about estrogen affecting lots of different binding proteins. Uh, that's uh, something that we've seen time and time again, the SHBG, even your uh, thyroxine binding globulin. So mm -hmm. if you have a, a menopausal woman on HRT, um, or she begins HRT, and she also has concurrent say, hypothyroidism, her dose requirement could go up for her levothyroxine or um, natural desiccated thyroid, whichever she happens to be on, that dose could be increased because she's going to have more proteins binding up mm -hmm. that thyroid hormone. It's not going to be getting to the receptor sites any longer. Absolutely. Just like with hormone replacement therapy, 
for oral contraceptive prescribing. You can't just be, you know, um, an expert in one system of the body. You have to be well versed in its hematologic complications and benefits. You have to be well versed in its gynecologic benefits, its obstetric benefits, its mental benefits, its dermatologic benefits, its uh, like even intrahepatic circulation of estrogen and the gut microbiome affecting how fast you excrete your estrogen in the stool. So there's benefits in all different systems of the body. So it's hard to say, you know, um, a lot of people benefit from it. And the other thing that I like to say is there's no, there's, there's probably no greater benefit to your health to being able to decide when to or when not to have fertility. So that's gonna affect everything else and potentially be a, like in some cases like that, the pros just always outweigh that con because it's such a, a hefty potential con. So th that's the issue is that so many people need someone to evaluate their hormonal profile while being on contraception, especially oral contraception, and there's just not enough care, there's not enough supply to meet that potential demand. Yeah, the, the research really hasn't been done in that area as, as far as looking, I mean, we have the numbers as far as, okay, we know you start oral contraceptives, this happens to the hormones, so I guess it's a bit incorrect to say the research hasn't been done, but it's not prevalent in, you know, seminars, people that physicians, th these events that physicians are attending um, and getting their education from, they're not saying, hey, if you have, you know, a woman who starts on an oral contraceptive, you're going to see a drop off in their testosterone. This could be a consideration for student athletes or college athletes. Because um, that certainly can impair your athletic performance. Um, it can also impair your caffeine excretion. So maybe you were always fine when you were you know, drinking Red Bulls before you got started on birth control and now mm -hmm. you get wired and anxious uh, because you're not gonna be excreting that caffeine as well. So every time you put something in, you have one intended effect and most of the time there's gonna be some other off-target effects, whether those are perceptible or not. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. Um, you, you don't know what you don't know. And um, a lot of patients, there's, you know, every patient has their own goals. Some do not wanna know, they literally just wanna to go to the doctor and say, doc, tell me what to do. This is what my goal is, which is obviously different for every person. Tell me what to do. And in those cases, we're happy to. Often I like to say, hey, do you mind if I just explain a little bit more than we absolutely have to? But it just kind of depends on the patient. And some patients want that prolonged shared decision-making process, which I think is wonderful as well. It means that they care about their health and what they're putting in their bodies. Yeah, I, I think careful consideration uh, is something that's really valuable. We've had multiple studies showing that shared decision-making leads to not only better outcomes, but also better adherence, because the patient, if they had some input into a decision and they understand it, they're more likely to stick to it. It's not just, well, my doctor told me this, so this is what I do. Mm -hmm. They go and they say, well, we had a discussion about this. We talked about what happens if I don't do this? What happens if I do this? And what are our plans, right? What's plan A, plan B, or what are my different options? Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at a fertility, um, something like a copper IUD, it's gonna have a negligible impact on your hormone production compared to uh, combined oral contraceptive. So that would be a, a better choice for someone who wants to maximize their athletic performance. If you have someone who is a 
Olympic athlete, I highly doubt that they would be taking prescribed oral contraceptives because that would be more than likely detrimental on their performance. And if they were, it would probably be the most androgenic one. <laughs> That's right, the most androgenic progestin. Correct. Yeah. Let's chat a bit more about um, non-oral contraceptives. Um, just like you can get HRT and patches and such, you can get contraceptives like that as well. Yeah. So if you look at um, what's actually well more, what's actually more well studied is postmenopausal HRT with mm -hmm. various forms: oral estradiol or transdermal estradiol, even synthetic estrogens. My preferred method of replacement is with uh, transdermal estradiol, which is bioidentical, combined with a oral progesterone, which is also bioidentical. And the reason for the transdermal estradiol is that when you take oral estradiol, you get a disproportionate liver effect like you talked about. Mm -hmm. When I say liver effect, I mean that first pass effect, you're going to get much more you know, ER receptor agonism, and you're going to have your SHBG go up, you're going to have more platelet activation, they're going to be more likely to, to stick together. Um, you, you shift towards a pro-coagulatory environment, which, you know, can have long-standing consequences. Even if somebody has a DVT and it doesn't break off and go anywhere bad, like you know, a lung, um, you can still have edema on your leg for the rest of your life, and you know that can be very cosmetically disturbing for some people. So when you're looking at additional benefits, and I guess circling back to the performance side of things for people who are concerned about their exercise performance or mm -hmm things like protein synthesis, it, it's pretty clear that the oral estradiol will attenuate a little bit of benefit from your growth hormone that you naturally produce, and it does slow your rate of total body protein synthesis to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, this is from some data in women who were actually treated for a growth hormone deficiency with synthetic growth hormone, and they compared two groups. One was taking transdermal estradiol, one was taking oral estradiol, the oral estradiol did seem to decrease your postprandial lipid oxidation a bit more, so it seemed to be a touch more cardioprotective, but at the expense of you know, more uh, activation of coagulatory pathways, a decrease in protein synthesis, lower levels of IGF-1, uh, not just the bioavailable IGF-1, but uh, the IGF-1, and then the, we know that the binding proteins are also going up there. So, you know, for things like your you know, metabolic dysfunction that you may see in people who have a true growth hormone deficiency, mm -hmm. you may be kind of blunting some of the benefit if you have them on a, an oral estradiol versus transdermal. And I think there could be a lot of the same similarities between uh, oral contraceptives and then hormonal patch contraceptives for women who are not menopausal, women who are just wanting to prevent pregnancy. Mm -hmm. uh, a patch is going to have just much less systemic effect. It's not going to have the same effects on SHBG production, for example. So that could be a, an option for somebody who wants to minimally impact their hormones and not undergo a procedure where they have a, an IUD inserted. Yeah, well, I think that's excellent advice for women. It's interesting that so many women uh, most, almost all for fairly good reason, are on synthetic progestins and uh, on estrogen as well. I know that the bodybuilding community has found these niche studies. They do studies on cows, and then one group of cows is given um, an androgen, uh, a 19 nor derivative, so basically kind of like a derivative of testosterone that probably has progestogenic activity as well, called trenbolone, 
and the other group is given trenbolone plus estradiol. And I, don't, I wouldn't say paradoxically so, because the trenbolone group is gonna not, it's gonna suppress their natural hormonal function. But with estradiol in that case, it actually leads to more muscle building and lean muscle mass accrual. Yeah, the, uh, the, the bodybuilding community, or if you are taking testosterone replacement therapy, given that data, it would seem very compelling to not lower your estradiol as much as possible, mm -hmm. just because it's the, the quote-unquote female hormone. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're talking about hormone dominance, then we know DHEA is really the uh, hormone that's circulating in the highest amounts in everybody, um, men and women. And uh, testosterone for most women is actually going to be higher on a milligram per milligram basis than their estradiol. So mm -hmm. this kind of, I guess, archaic terminology of male hormones versus female hormones, uh, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. It definitely is. It seems like in many cases, especially in the cases with females, they're either worried about too high of testosterone or too low of testosterone. Whereas baseline androgenic activity, how much their androgen receptor gene is being activated is really the thing to look at. Yeah, there's different sensitivities to all sorts of hormones, whether that's estrogens, whether that's androgens, and you can have you know, good sensitivity to testosterone, you can be very sensitive to DHT. Uh, some people who are concerned with androgenic alopecia, very sensitive to medications or even supplements that have the potential to lower DHT mm -hmm. levels. And you know, for them, uh, you know, is the balance is, is the decrease in your quality of life worth you know, maintaining a, a full head of hair? So, you know, again, a discussion of risks and benefits. Some people will willingly sacrifice their libido to maintain their hair, and some people will say, you know, no, that's not for me. I want to maintain libido um, and not lose my hair. And there's certainly some promising alternatives there with um, the, uh, the uh, topical dutasteride coming more into the light and seeing a few studies published there now. You don't have the same plethora of data, but it's something that can be done and is not going to negatively impact your systemic DHT levels. Yeah, it is extremely promising. Um, there's lots more targeted therapy, and as we've talked about a few times before, in general supplements and earlier generation medications are less targeted, and newer generation medications are becoming more and more targeted, which is more like a scalpel, so it has very specific benefits and side effects, which is kind of nice for monitoring. Another point with uh, HRT doses and androgens in women and men as well. Every medication or medication regimen has what we call a therapeutic window. And HRT is no different. It's amazing to see some individuals, both male and female, have a huge therapeutic window and some have a very narrow therapeutic window. And those are really the difficult cases. And I think we tend to see a lot of these cases as well. Yeah, when people will, you know, come to us, it, it's not because they're, they couldn't possibly be better, you know, they're, they're dialed in 100%, uh, although I did have one patient tell me, uh, if, I was too, if I was doing any better, then vitamins would be taking me. So he was actually doing really well and just wanted to take some advice that he'd heard from you actually, you know, taking a look under the hood or, or plugging in at the mechanic and saying, I feel good, but what do these things actually look like? Where is my baseline? Which yeah. I think is a great idea for everybody. You know, you want to see where your levels are at, how you're feeling when you're young and healthy. Mm -hmm. So you have that to compare to and, and plot trends across time as you increase in age and different life events occur. Yeah. Um, that's the best way to do it is to get ahead of the curve as much as possible. 
because there are a lot of people who think they have a very wide therapeutic window and they actually have a very narrow therapeutic window because again, that's the subjective data, how you're feeling and the objective data as well, what everything looks like under the hood. Yeah, exactly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.